On today's episode of the podcast, I start out by sharing a little pregnancy update. And from there, I move into, for the first time ever on this podcast, sharing the real, factual, unfiltered version of my first labor and birthing Leia and what actually happened there. I talk about the many interventions that I received that I didn't want that led to an outcome that I was deeply hoping not to have. So this podcast really is a, a dive into what my experience with the medical system has been like and why I am opting out of that this time around. Uh, this episode and what I share could be triggering. It could stir a lot of things inside of you. Talking about birth is a big deal. And um, this is me sharing my story and my beliefs. Mothers deserve the absolute best. So this Mother's Day, spoil the moms in your life with little luxuries from Osea. Osea's skin and body care is the perfect way to remind all the moms, mother figures, caregivers, grandmothers, and mother-in-laws in your life to make time for themselves. If you have been looking for the perfect gift, I recommend Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I've been using it for years and it seems like every single time I apply it, I get compliments on my skin. This body oil is rich, but it's never greasy and it's clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. Your skin will feel more sculpted and toned and you'll be left feeling silky, soft and glowing. Another favorite of mine is the Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Ever since I've been using collagen, I have noticed a difference in my skin. In fact, it's never been better. Using Osea's body oil and lotion together is a mega moisture duo, giving you a full body glow. Osea's products are infused with our signature Andaria seaweed, but it's also clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Really just a perfect gift for yourself, the moms in your life, and even the planet. Spoil the moms in your life with clean, vegan skin and body care from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with the code YOGA at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. Let's jump in. Hello, hello, hello. My friends, my dear community, hi. Welcome to a brand new episode of the show. I am sitting here in the corner of my bedroom, looking out at the beautiful, although pretty cold still, springtime weather outside my window. And um, if you hear any noise in the background, it's Ringo, my Italian greyhound, who is licking himself incessantly <laughs> next to me on the bed right now and it's 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 very noisy yeah i'm sitting here looking out at this beautiful weather wishing i had tons of energy today wishing i had mm, just some motivation and inspiration to go be outside but i am just so tired i'm sure you can I'm sure you can hear it in my voice a little bit too. I am just so, so, so tired. I've had a, a few days in a row of just feeling like a deflated balloon or something. Like someone just like pulled the plug on all of my energy and and I feel done. 
I don't know. I've had a couple of weeks in a row with lots of bursts of energy and feeling like I'm getting so much done and moving projects and things forward and just really motivated about, yeah, everything happening in, in my life these days, especially here at the farm and the hands-on work we're doing in the garden and around the house and things like that. And then just a couple days ago, nope, that's over. <laughs> and I remember someone told me, I think this was when I, I'm, I'm, I'm weak. What week is it? <laughs> I'm not so good at keeping really close track of the weeks. It's, it's 34, going to be soon 35, almost 35 weeks of this pregnancy. And um, someone told me when I was at week like 28 or ish, and they said, oh, okay, well, you enjoy these next weeks because this is the peak of progesterone in your body throughout pregnancy. And progesterone really is that like micromanage everything until everything gets done kind of hormone. It's really the the project hormone that makes you want to pick things up and see them through and complete them. And you're going to have tons of energy to nest and get ready. And then all of a sudden, like around week 35, that that the hormones in your body are going to change as you get closer to labor and you're going to need more rest. And you'll feel that transition. And I was like, nah. <laughs> like, I feel like I always have that kind of like get things done, see projects through, start things up, energy inside. So I just thought, no, I'll just, I have so much to do before this baby comes. I don't see myself completely stopping or completely slowing everything down. And then a couple of days ago, I, I literally have a hard time getting out of bed. <laughs> Today at 10 a.m., I think I got out of bed at eight maybe at 10 I was like I'm done <laughs> I've been awake for two hours <laughs> and I'm done I'm ready to go back like someone take me back to bed please <laughs> which I guess you know as you get closer to the end of pregnancy of course that's a lot like if you have the ability to go back to bed if anyone was telling me this you know, oh, I'm 35-ish weeks pregnant and I'm so tired. I'd be like, dude, give yourself permission to just go back to bed. But for me, I don't want to go back to bed. <laughs> I don't want to. I want to continue working and getting things ready. I want to continue nesting. Of course, I know this baby could be born tonight and everything would be wonderful and fine. I'm not going to be halfway through labor going like, oh, the, the changing table isn't assembled. <laughs> you know, like that's like some great hindrance for, for this baby to come. <laughs> Obviously, whenever he chooses to make his arrival, it's going to be great and perfect. And I'll laugh at all the trivial little things that I wanted to have ready, right? But it's also part of pregnancy. It's part of third trimester part of steadying our minds and getting ourselves ready is this these projects right and nesting and writing the lists and thinking of all the logistical stuff and everything we want to have ready and it's also just very much in my nature to want to have things perfect right that's just who I am so I have 
I have lists <laughs> and lists. <laughs> I am a list writing person, as you already know. And I have, like, I have lists for like different rooms of the house. I have lists for different areas of the land. I have lists for the birth. I have lists for like postpartum. Like I have like lists as in here's here stuff that we're missing that we need to buy. Here's stuff that we need to prepare. Here's how many postpartum meals I would like to have cooked and done and labeled and in my freezer. <laughs> like that's just one of those things. And like, that's one little project. It's not even a little project. Like ideally, I would love, I would love to have at least a month. Like I would be happy with two weeks two, three weeks maybe, but at least a month worth of nourishing food in my freezer, <laughs> ready to go. And that's not that unreasonable. Um, I batch cook, so I make huge batches of Things like stews and soups and chilies and just mainly like I'm, I've been making a lot of soup. I've just been, I feel like soup and warm, nourishing foods, especially broth-based foods, I feel are, it's really going to be supportive for me postpartum. And uh, if I cook a meal a day... <laughs> which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're already cooking breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack for your family, you know, and it's like you're alone in the cooking and the food prep and all that stuff. And there's a gazillion other, other things to do. Some days I have a hard time like getting dinner on the table, you know, and, um, and I have to like feel okay, kind of, I don't want to say half-assing dinner, but that not everything is cooked completely from scratch and organ made organic and you know, I have I have a really high standard for quality of food now for the family. I, I really do, um, and it's 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 a little bit of an obstacle <laughs> for me. <laughs> like we live also so far out on the countryside, it's not like we have an option to oh super tired today. Let's get takeout. Like we don't have that. There's no takeout here. Um, so takeout for us, it's like what do we have in the freezer? right? It's like a really big blessing for future Rachel to prepare meals and have them ready and to, pre to prep and plan for meals and dinner and stuff. So I really wanted that for myself postpartum. It's because I want to have the ability to just rest and not focus on big family meals. And if, if I can, at least for a few weeks, like that would be a blessing. But I haven't really gotten to that place, right? And that's just one little thing, right? And then I have so, so, so many other things that we have going on. And uh, in an ideal world, I would love for this little kiddo's little room to be ready, even though he's not going to sleep in his own room. But, you know, I want to wash the clothes so that like his clothes are ready, which is such a beautiful last moment thing to do decide on things like diapers and <laughs> buy what we need for that. Like, how are we going to do that this time around? Are we doing conventional or cloth diapers? Or are we going to do elimination communication, which is something I'm so interested in? Yeah. But honestly, I just, I have no energy. 
like even for the little things. And what's hard these days is sometimes I get a little burst and I'm like, okay, you know, so like the other day, I don't know, a couple of days ago, I made a meal plan. I'm like, okay, here are X amount of meals I'm going to make now. And then I buy all the things, go, go to the grocery store, get everything. And then I just lose energy. And now I feel pressure because I know I have food in the fridge. I need to, I need to get to, it's going to go bad, you know, <laughs> or I start something up. Like I have a lot of projects in the garden now. I have sowed so many seeds and I felt really energized and excited and, oh, the, you know, we're, we are going to have a really beautiful vegetable garden any way. There was a moment where I thought maybe we wouldn't because I, I can't really do the work the way I normally would in the garden. And then now I've been able to outsource and get some help for the heavy duty stuff. So I think, okay, it's going to happen. So I planted tons of seeds. We have uh, growing lights and we plant indoors. And then, of course, the way seeds do, they sprout and they grow. And then all of a sudden, they need a bigger home. <laughs> this is what it is. Growing indoors, preparing to plant outside. And I have so many seedlings now <laughs> that need more space. And the idea, just even the idea of getting to that, even the idea of <laughs> like... Uh, of getting a fifth of that done. It's so exhausting, like so exhausting. <laughs> so I'm just sitting here with this kind of feeling of yeah, incompletion, feeling of I just need to surrender. Like worst thing, yeah, they all, all my seedlings die. Like they don't have to. I, I know I can get to it. I can ask someone for help. Like I'll find a way, but it's just like, oh God. <laughs> Worst case, I have to throw all that food in the fridge away because I didn't cook. I don't want that. You know, worst case, uh, well, my seedlings will die. I don't want that. But even if those things happen, it's like, well, I'll, I'll live, right? I'll be okay. Um, I'm pregnant and tired and this is what is right now. So yeah, that's me. And today I had, I had one of those days where I just, I really am walking around in like a little bit of a fog, it feels like. And we have so many things happening at the house. That's also huge projects that have to be finished, but they don't involve me as much. But every single day, 7 a.m., people march into our house. <laughs> so the construction workers, contractor, plumbers, electricians, they just, yeah, they just march in, which I have, of course, allowed them to do and told them to please do and Come as early as you can and stay as long as you can because we are renovating our upstairs bathroom and it's already, we're a month behind on this project. I thought it would be done by now and we are not nearly, like we're not even close to being done. So they are here all day, you know, making tons and tons of, it's just active construction in the middle of our house. And in one way, it's very comforting because it means things are happening and moving forward and for every day that there's a whole team of people here working really hard, making tons of noise and a huge mess, the likelihood of this bathroom being finished before the baby comes is higher. So <laughs> I'm not complaining that they're here. I'm not upset in any way that they're here. I'm really grateful that they're here and that we're making this happen. But it's also really tiring because there's not a part of the house that's quiet all day. And uh, even when Leia's at school and then is away working, I'm like, it's never, 
yeah, it's never quiet. I, I never have really privacy or space. And that's okay, but it's getting a little bit, yeah, it's getting a little bit tiring now. <laughs> and I don't know how many weeks I keep asking, like, what do you guys think? Like, how, how close are we? It's like, oh, I didn't really want to give you a date. And I'm like, I know, neither, neither does this baby. <laughs> but just so you guys know, I wouldn't be surprised if he showed up in a couple weeks. Like I honestly, and I felt this way with Leia also. With Leia, I felt that way because people told me from week, I think 36 or something, they were like, oh my God, this belly is so huge. This baby is so huge. Get ready. This baby's going to come any moment. You know, be careful. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Even though like, on average, like first time mothers don't birth until week 41, right? And uh, and I really had that in my mind, like, oh, she can come any moment. And then of course I had to wait another six and a half weeks for her to come. Imagine that. Over a month and a half, I was like anticipating any day. I mean, that was mentally so, so frustrating. And this time around, no one's really telling me anything because I'm not, I'm, I had, this is a wild pregnancy. <laughs> I'm not seeing anybody. I'm not, I don't have a midwife. I'm not seeing any, I'm not doing any, uh, any um, visits or prenatal care at a, at a clinic. I'm not doing any of that. So I, I don't risk anybody telling me bullshit, <laughs> which feels really good. But the feeling I have is a little bit different. And that might change. It could just be like his positioning right now and the fact that he's growing really quickly right now. But I do feel like this belly is very low. <laughs> I feel a lot of downward pressure. <laughs> I feel a lot of pubic bone pain. Um, I also feel like he's very uncomfortable in there, which I can't remember feeling that way with Leia. Like he literally moves nonstop. I mean, I, I have my hand on my womb now and it's just like kick, kick, kick. Like he's just constantly. Like it's like at any moment I can just put my hand there and he's like, yo, what's up? And then he high fives me. <laughs> and it's no longer those cute little kicks, you know, like you have mid-pregnancy, <laughs> second trimester kind of thing. It's like wiggling around. <laughs> like a fish, like a, like big sweeping movements, like he's running out of space, you know? So I feel, I can look at my belly and you can, I can see it just kind of turn like waves rippling across the surface of my whole belly. You know, you've seen those, those things, I'm sure, um, on video and stuff people love to, love to share. And it's all day, all night. Like last night, I didn't sleep a wink because he, He's just either deeply uncomfortable, <laughs> like he's just running out of space, trying to get comfy, or he's just showing me what like what life earth side is going to be. We're going to party all night. <laughs> like we are literally going to party all night. I, I let's, I don't know. I don't know what this is, but even now, if I sit up straight he's uncomfortable. If I lean forward just a tiny bit, like to eat or to sit at a table, it's like I compress and squish him just a tiny bit and he just resists. Like he just like, you know, spasms a little bit in there, like stop it. And then I lean back and then he chills. 
So <laughs> I don't know what this says for the last few weeks of this pregnancy, considering he's gaining like, I don't know how much, what is it, like half a pound or something a week? <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so let's, let's see. Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where Ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. I don't think there is a thing as abnormally big. You know, I feel like people are very obsessed with the idea of the size of babies and also have this very negative correlation that the bigger the baby, the harder the labor has to be, which doesn't at all have to be true. And both Dennis and I, like, we're fairly big people, you know? Like, he's 6'4", I'm 5'8", like, we're both, like, sturdy, <laughs> like, we're not tiny little petite humans, you know? Like, it makes sense for us to have, like, babies that are in proportion to us, Right? And um, both my dad and my brother were 11 pounds when they were born, <laughs> which is a joy. You know, Leia was nine and a half, nine and six or something. She was almost 10. Wait, I have to, I have to check my pounds. Yeah, Leia was nine and a half pounds. And uh, my brother and my dad were 11, like five kilo babies. That's kind of wild. And I was almost the same exact weight as Leia, like nine pounds, 9.3 or something like that. So it would be super, it would be a little out of the norm, I think, to have a six pound baby for me. And I know in different parts of the world, of course, kids are different sizes. Like in Aruba, babies are really small compared to Sweden. In Sweden, a nine pound baby is not a thing. Like that's not something that people go, oh, a big baby. no. Like, not at all. When uh, Olivia, my best friend, gave birth at home um, two months, has it been two months? Yeah, almost exactly two months ago. Yeah, two months and like three, four days. And I was there for 
for his birth. And then when he came out and she was nursing him and we were just looking at his perfect little body, he didn't look big to me at all. Like he didn't. And then we were just guessing like, oh, like because she's had two kids before, a boy and a girl before this boy and uh, her and her husband. And I were like, oh my God. So, so like, is he, is he going to be the smallest one out of the three and they were guessing, like, maybe he's, like, right in between them. Because he, he seemed, I don't know, he didn't seem that big. And then they weighed him, and he's the biggest one. <laughs> like, he was nine pounds something, like 4.3 kilos or something. I can't, I, I can't remember. But he was also, like, yeah, nine and a half or something pounds. And uh, he, he didn't seem that, that big at all. <laughs> I don't know. But in a lot of other places, when you talk about babies that size, people are like, oh my God, how would you birth that? It's like, I genuinely believe in majority of majority of all cases, we conceive and grow the babies that we are meant to birth, right? I mean, it would be really strange if, if the norm was something else, you know? And I think we get told a lot that we can't, that birth is super dangerous, super hard, super horrible, really uh, impossible for the body and, you know, a big risk and something we need medical support to do. And I think hearing those stories and, and then kind of affirming them to ourselves our whole lives, which is what we do with things that we just believe to be true, which is what we were told. I think that has a huge impact. I know I've had to do a lot of deconditioning a lot of deconditioning around this birth and I actually I started going to a different kind of therapy um, I've been going to just I've been going to therapy for a couple of years I mean I've done a lot of therapeutic stuff over the years over the course of my whole entire adult life <laughs> I've, I've done every conceivable thing everything from plant medicine, which I genuinely believe to be deep cellular therapy, to ceremonial things and rituals and long trainings and retreats and primal work and rebirth kind of work and ancestral trauma work and family constellation work and childhood trauma stuff. And I've done so many different modalities of therapeutic work. But over the past, I think, three-something years, I've had a fairly steady, like every single week, I have an hour um, of talk therapy, which has been really helpful for me. It's been a really, um, yeah, if, you, if I'm having a, an easy time, I find something to work with from a grounded place. And if I'm having a hard time, I have someone to hold me through that. You know, and someone, a place to share and to vent and to open up and to release and to, uh, it's not always earth shatteringly huge and deep, bringing me revelation after revelation, but it's, it's never something I regret. It's never like, oh, that was a pointless hour. No, no. It's like, it's therapy. It's, it's a journey. But since I got pregnant and I got deeper into this pregnancy, and I started feeling the more I was kind of reliving the first pregnancy with Leia, the more I was comparing the two experiences, the more little 
moments of pain started coming up for me from my first pregnancy and my first labor. And then realizing that all those little things that I thought were so little and not a big deal are actually huge. And then realizing I have trauma to process from that time. Not as much from just pregnancy, definitely last weeks, but from, yeah, things that really happened beyond my control, where I was felt leaving, where I was left feeling completely out of control, where I was disassociating, um, where I just feel like I had to completely disconnect from my own body. Really big things, huge things. But because I have been told my whole life that as long as mama and baby are healthy, then it's a successful birth, right? Then labor went well. And in my head, I had it like I really didn't want to, you know, for me, an like worst case scenario would be uh, an emergency C-section or having to be induced or having to have a, a bunch of drugs or pharmaceuticals that I didn't want in my system. Like I had things that for me were like, this is what I definitely don't want. And none of those things specifically happened. So I think I told myself, well, I had the birth was good, right? It was still so much of what I had said I wanted. I, I got to have a, a vaginal birth. I got to have a um, unmedicated birth. My husband was there, which was what I wanted. And a lot of things. I was home most of the time out of the, whatever, 24 hours. I was home for like 18, 19 hours. That was pretty good, right? Almost home all the way. I really wanted a home birth. So this whole time, I just been telling myself everything was good. And by doing that, I was bypassing and completely ignoring the many things that were really, really bad. And when I say really bad, I, I really mean like really, really bad. <laughs> and it's funny because it re this really is such a full circle thing. I started this podcast when Leah was one week old. And the first episode of the podcast is my birth story. And I haven't gone back to listen to that. And I'm kind of scared to, to be honest. And I'm also, I don't want to ruin the good memories because so much of it was good and beautiful. And I think what I felt immediately afterwards, you know, being just flooded with all the love and all the magic and I have a baby and we have a family and it was just like, you know, <laughs> unless you have suffered severe trauma, I, I genuinely think a lot of postpartum depression is 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 PTSD, like post-traumatic stress from having really traumatizing birth experiences. So if you don't have that and, you, and you're feeling happy and good and everything overall went really wonderfully, then yeah, it was a good birth. And it's also something our bodies do. It's like we shut down the things that weren't good. <laughs> um, it's also part of, you know, survival and protection and things like that. Mm, so I remember when I was telling that birth story, I think I wrote it down first. And none of it, I don't think... I have to go back and listen. If I feel inspired one of these days, I will. I don't think a single negative thing came out of me when I was telling my birth story. I don't think I felt like I had experienced a single negative thing. 
And that's beautiful. Like, I'm really glad I felt that way then. I think it would have been a lot for me to process at the time, postpartum time and first being a first time mother, having a newborn. I mean, all of that is so overwhelming. So I think in a really beautiful way, I'm glad I had that overall positive, glowy experience. And yeah, not everything happened the way I wanted to, but it happened the way it was supposed to, right? That's what I genuinely believed. And I think if I listen to that podcast and that birth story, what I say in the show is that the baby got stuck. Leah got stuck. And it was very obvious that she was stuck, that she couldn't come out. And in my head, I had it as like, she must have had like her shoulders wedged in a way. Something must have been, like I thought in my head, like her positioning was wrong somehow or off. Mm, so it wouldn't have mattered what I would have done or tried at home. She just wouldn't have been able to be born at home. And then I made it into like the story I told myself was that surrendering to the fact that this wasn't possible, surrendering to the fact that like I just couldn't, like my body just couldn't birth her because she was stuck, meant like I had to surrender. It was, became a spiritual experience. I had to surrender to the unknown and surrender to the one thing I didn't want, which was hospital. And I think about that now and I'm like, I get this very icky feeling like I didn't fucking, that wasn't God somehow stepping in to give me a spiritual experience. Like that was literally the result of having spent months being told that my body couldn't do it. That was a result of having had a labor and a birth process that was continuously interrupted in ways that were deeply uncomfortable, completely unnecessary, and a labor that was full of interventions that I didn't understand at the time even were interventions, and also filled with gaslighting and a lot of lies of here's what you need if you don't do this, so-and-so might happen and that might not work or not be safe or interventions without explanation. This will, this will make things go quicker. That actually ended up being really, really harmful for me and, and making labor hugely, like so much more difficult than it, more difficult than it had to be. And getting to the hospital, did someone there magically turn my baby around? <laughs> inside of me or you know was there something that happened there that all of a sudden got her unstuck no because she wasn't stuck she was never stuck there was no indication of her being stuck other than the midwife voicing her concerns that probably something probably we should go in which I can see now is that she never wanted me to birth at home in the first place she was never a hundred percent comfortable with me being at home and every intervention I got from the moment it started, and even earlier than that, was taking me on the path to the hospital. And I kind of see now how the system <laughs> works that way. Yeah, I, I, through this, just through realizing all of the things that I now, I mean, it happened how it happened, right? 
I don't believe in uh, regrets or, you know, wishing things were different because that doesn't take me anywhere. But I do believe in honoring the process of grieving that things didn't happen for you the way you wanted them to. I also believe in accountability. I also believe in getting really clear on like what actually is harmful in these situations and coming from people that are put in a place where they're supposed to be the most trustworthy, the most safe, only have your best interest at heart, but actually in a lot of ways don't fully, that's Ringo, (laughs) in a lot of ways don't fully understand or respect the mother or the wishes of the person giving birth. And since just being back there, like I look now at like, what do I want for this birth? I can give you a list of 30 things that happened to me in my first, like end of my first pregnancy and in my first labor that I will never allow again, that I will never in a million years think of as helpful or even consider even one time. And those things include, I mean, I can share, (laughs) they include, well, if I start from the very beginning, they include putting myself in a position uh, of risking being told all throughout my very healthy pregnancy that I am unhealthy that there is something potentially very risky and wrong with my pregnancy, which I understand is how the medical system needs to view every pregnant woman because they are literally looking for the moments when they are really needed, right? I mean, it's not a health care system. It's a sick care system. In Sweden, it's not. It's called sjukvården, which is like sick care and to 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 completely surrender to that as a healthy person doesn't make any sense because for me that the healthcare system the sick care system they don't know that much about health yeah so i would not turn to the medical system for anything along the lines of wanting to be my absolute most peak healthiest self no i would turn to them for disease for a major illness, for broken bones, for the the many reasons where I actually would need care as a sick or injured person. And not everyone is like that. I'm like that. I've been like that my almost whole entire life. I believe more in the holistic, more natural ways of, of healing, and that's the path that I've taken in my life. Um, not everybody's like that, but I'm like that. So the fact that I, as a completely healthy pregnant person, surrendered all of my my mental health, my physical health, my emotional health, and the outcome of the birth of my first baby, that I surrendered that into the hands of the sick care system, is to me now that I look back at it, it's just, it's, 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 it's a little crazy, actually, that I did that. And I had this idea that because I was going to birth at home, because I was not, you know, because I wanted an unmedicated birth, because I I wanted to be completely at home with a doula and with candles lit and, 
you know, with my music. And I, I, I thought I would get to have that kind of more natural, more holistic, more spiritual experience. But what I did was I started the journey of my pregnancy in the medical system, not understanding that by doing that and integrating myself into that, I immediately closed the door on everything else. And that's just, that's just fact. So I, um, I genuinely have arrived at a place now where I feel so convinced that for every prenatal checkup that isn't necessary, for some people, certain things I believe are, are absolutely necessary. If you have prior conditions or you have things you're concerned about or you're not feeling well in different ways, there's a million reasons why it could be great for anybody to have that kind of extra care. But for me, who didn't feel any of those things, I just thought I, I had to do them. I just thought, this is what you do. You get pregnant, you, you go to these clinics, you go to these controls, you go to these checkups, you do everything they tell you because that's the best thing, right? These are people who literally are dedicating their lives to making sure that babies are born healthy and vibrant and that mamas are okay, right? It's like this, I had this... I thought it was this like loving, beautiful, compassionate, caring thing, but it's not. <laughs> and yes, there are super caring and compassionate people in that system. Not saying everybody who works in the system is, a, is bad. No, there's beautiful, wonderful people, super dedicated, but the system is not designed for that. The system is there to catch the high risk people. You know, the system is there to really sort through and find, well, who needs us, right? Who is it that actually needs that C-section? Who needs this medication? Who needs these emergency interventions? But what happens is when you look at every woman from a standpoint of huge risk, you start to find those signs everywhere, and as time goes on, we've kind of become confused into thinking that everybody, it's better to give everybody everything, treat everybody as a potential huge risk, because that has to be the safest thing, right? Not considering that the interventions that you do along the way, when you treat every woman as a high risk person or treat every woman as potentially things might go terribly wrong for you and your body might not be able to do what it's designed to do. Those interventions actually inhibit the ability to, to have a natural birth. Those very things that the system thinks keeps us safe is what keeps us harmed. That's what generates the trauma. That's what generates the big things that we didn't want. The little things that they start off with leads to bigger things, which leads to the other thing. And then in, a lot of people end up in really out of control, scary experiences that they didn't want with the idea of, well, I'm lucky I was at the hospital because they could fix it. Not considering the fact that they started those interventions in the first place. And now I'm not talking every single experience. Of course, there is those rare instances where something really bad does happen all on its own and it would have happened exactly that way if you were in an undisturbed, quiet, safe place, supported, right? But 
I genuinely believe that the majority of those things happen because of the interference that we are put under as pregnant women in the system. I, I, I genuinely believe that. And I believe that every prenatal control that I have missed for this pregnancy has kept me safer. <laughs> and I know people don't like hearing that, especially since we treat like allopathic medicine and doctors and gynecologists as gods. Like we should just be on our knees, bow to their knowledge. And we've completely set aside the knowledge, deep knowledge of women ancestral knowledge of birth keepers who literally <laughs> passed down in vital, vital wisdom generation to generation that worked beautifully, that was designed for how birth physiologically worked until men stepped in one day and said, you know what, this is not, this is not a women's thing. How can we let these, how can we let these midwives and these medicine women and these grandmothers be in charge of, of supporting women through birth. They haven't even been to university. <laughs> How could they possibly be in charge of this? We must step in here. And that is not when things started all of a sudden magically <laughs> getting better and more compassionate and safer. No, that's when birth became institutionalized and we were put on our backs under fluorescent lighting <laughs> being told that you need this and this and this and this, or this is going to happen, or just having interventions pushed on us without a semblance of consent or people even asking. And uh, I feel like the risk of, for me, an example of that is going to a lot of prenatal visits at the end of pregnancy, risking coming across a person feeling that the size of this baby is, is, is abnormal, right? Which is something I genuinely don't believe in. The risk of me being pushed to having a major intervention that I don't want just because I came across that one person at a routine checkup all of a sudden increases a hundredfold, Right? And it's really impossible to be in a position as a pregnant woman hearing a, an expert, an educated person on the other side of a table saying, if you don't do this, you're putting your baby at risk. Not considering the fact that you are completely healthy, that from a standpoint of a regular human being, you, your body can absolutely birth the baby that you have. And the actual risk of of something that terrible happening is so minuscule that there is a gazillion other things that we should be considering and worrying about before that thought is even put in our heads. But we look at birth as if almost like baby might die, mother might die, everything probably will go terribly wrong. So let's make sure we're in this and this and this scenario completely losing sight of going into that scenario is what increases the risk of things going wrong. And I feel being in this place now where I don't risk anybody telling me something's not right with my body. And I don't believe the pregnant body is different from the regular non-pregnant body in that all of a sudden we just die. 
Like that is also bizarre. Like I would be walking around pregnant with a major insane medical condition that needs urgent medical care that would prohibit me from being able to give birth, but I'm not feeling anything. I have no symptoms of that. I have no inclination, intuition, feeling, vibration of that. Like, when does that happen in our regular lives? <laughs> like, do you hear about that off so often that, you know, you're walking around with this major, major medical emergency and you don't know and you're totally clueless and you don't feel anything in your body? No. When we are sick, when something's wrong, when something's not going right, the body is genius at telling us that. And especially in pregnancy where we feel everything so acutely, right? We are uber present in our bodies when we're pregnant because everything is transitioning and changing. We're noticing everything. And this idea that all of a sudden, without knowing, boom, we have this crazy condition and that means we can't birth our babies without an induction, or boom, we can't carry our babies past 40 weeks or all of these things. I just don't believe it. Of course, there's exceptions to everything, but I just, for the majority of women, no, I don't believe that. And by not taking those prenatal visits, I get to remain in the safety and security of the health of my own body. Trusting that if I would get sick, if something would be off, if I would be, you know, moving through some major condition, I would feel, hey, something's not feeling right. Hey, I have this weird pain. Hey, I'm, I'm dizzy. Hey, I feel crazy out of breath in a way that feels really strange to me. Or my heart is racing. Or, you know, my hands and feet are itching out of control. I would get some sort of symptom and then I would go and get help for that or research that, or ask advice around that and see, well, what could that possibly be? And that I can trust that I know my own body well enough. <laughs> but as long as I'm feeling great, right? As long as this baby's great, like the idea that I would risk going to visits where they are looking at me, scanning for things that potentially could be off, like that is a really dangerous position for me to be, especially as a person who births big babies, right? Chances are they would hammer me over the head <laughs> to get an induction by week 41 if the baby hadn't come yet. And that's a really hard thing to say no to at the end of pregnancy. There's no such thing as informed consent in a medical setting because the power balance is completely off. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. 
Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. It's already that, like having changed that. And then I look at pregnancy with Leah, the way they casually told me things, and they do that constantly with every woman, like at the end of pregnancy, they want to sweep your membranes, right? I'm sure that a lot of women listening to this who've had babies had that intervention happen. It's something that they often do during cervical exams without asking, um, without explaining what that means, without explaining that that is a huge interference at the end of pregnancy, and that it can trigger things to happen inside of your body that your body hasn't prepared for yet, that your body isn't ready for yet. And I thought, well, you just sweep the membranes. Like that's, everybody does that at the end of pregnancy. And it's only positive. It has no, it doesn't change a single thing inside of your whole body or for your baby, other than the fact that the baby might come sooner and then you don't have to worry about having to get induced and going to the hospital, which was my like biggest no. So I go, great, that's wonderful. That was deeply uncomfortable vaginal exam. I can't remember how many stupid vaginal exams I had in that pregnancy. I hate vaginal exams. Who enjoys them? No one enjoys them. And they're not really explained to us right? Like, why are they done so constantly and continuously, especially toward the end of pregnancy? Why are they done during labor? Just like the most insane time ever to have a person, a stranger that you don't know wearing plastic gloves finger you in the middle of labor. Like when you start, at least for me, when I started looking at that and just kind of getting objective with that, and then doing my research around that, it, my 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 brain explodes with the I just with just the knowing that this happens to every woman every time, every day, birthing at a hospital. You can say I don't want a single cervical exam. It's, it's extremely hard to deny in a hospital setting, and they're going to find reasons as to why you desperately need one, even though science doesn't back that up genuinely. And this idea that birth is linear, <laughs> that by having a stranger's fingers up your vagina, they'll be able to tell you when your baby's coming. No, no. Science doesn't say that. Studies don't show that at all. But what it is, is a way for the system and for the hospital to put pressure and put a timestamp on your labor. Oh, if by so and so many hours... You still haven't progressed, I'm using air quotes with that, past so-and-so many centimeters, it's taking too long, right? They don't want you there forever. They don't want you to have an organic, natural, physiological birth in the time that your body wants to birth that baby. That's not how this system works. They are already there with the next intervention, which is to hurry something up, to give you a drug that might oops, lead to your baby's heart rate going down. And now, oops, all of a sudden your baby needs a little monitor poked through his scalp 
which means that you can't move around freely anymore. You can't be on your hands and knees. They need to monitor your heart, baby's heart. You need to remain on your back, you know, kind of strapped in. And of course, labor is going to get unbearably painful when you are restrained and restricted. And of course, every drug that anyone puts in your system is going to have a side effect. There's a reason why home births, the risk of bleeding or severe bleeding or hemorrhaging is so much lower at home because the risk of the prior interventions there are so low because you're at home. But no one really pauses and lets you know that, hey, you do this little thing here, which is just good, but it does increase the risk of this other thing happening, which means you know, there's a risk for this other thing happening. And then all of a sudden you're at the end of all of that and then labor is just stalled, right? All of a sudden your body is like, I don't want to open anymore. How, how could it? <laughs> like, how could you in that situation um, be in a place where of, of actual deep trust and relaxation and presence that the body needs physiologically to give birth? No, it doesn't feel safe. Thing after thing is pushed on you. Maybe different people walking in and out of that room. Maybe there's a shift change. Maybe you have bad luck with the person that you end up with. Like there's so much that's out of our control. And then all of a sudden, oops, you know, labor stalling. And also baby's heart rate's falling. Yeah, we, we, we got to cut this baby out now. And then emergency C-section and so lucky I was at the hospital, right? Whew. Imagine needing an emergency C-section and then you're, you're like home. Those people who birth at home, like they're, they're really crazy, right? <laughs> and I'm sharing this. This is just kind of where I have ended up in my own process of researching every single thing that happened to me in my labor for the first time around and how each thing led to the next thing. And I was just a pure luck that I didn't have to have a bigger intervention than just ending up at the hospital, which is what I didn't want to do. And I was in Aruba where they don't do C-sections, to be, to be honest. You can't schedule, a, like in a lot of places in the world, you can schedule a C-section if you really want one. It's really rare um, in Aruba. But had I been somewhere else, yeah, chances are that I would have ended up with something very different. So what happened was I, uh, for me, labor started. And I have shared this story. This is going to be a long podcast. <laughs> Let's talk labor. <laughs> Let's talk pregnancy. Let's talk the medical system. And, oof, I never know. Also, this is, these are triggering topics, you know, really, really, they are, especially I think when we get to that place of realizing that we were really out of control the whole time, like from the moment we surrendered to that system, there was nothing we could have changed about the outcome of how our birth happened. And for me, you know, when I remember labor started for real with Leia, it was four in the morning. I'd had some like contractions on and off the day before, but they had stopped and I was so stressed. I was so worried. I had spent 
so many weeks eating spicy food, having crazy amounts of sex with my husband for the pure reason of trying to get labor started, walking stairs, walking on the beach. They say walking on that uneven surface is really helpful for inducing labor, eating pineapple, eating like, what is it called? Like, like, uh, like, uh, eggplant parm. Has anybody heard of that? I don't know where I got that, but someone said, you eat this eggplant parmesan dish, you go into labor. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> Trying different kinds of like tinctures and herbs. And I even at some point drank castor oil and then immediately changed my mind. There's this like castor oil drink that they say can induce labor, which can cause severe vomiting and dehydration. Like it's actually really dangerous. And I just had a little sip of that drink that I made and I just knew like this is bad and I didn't drink it. I'm, I'm glad, grateful for that. And then finally, you know, 42 and a half weeks <laughs> pregnant, 4 a.m. I was like, I was woken up by real contractions. Like I knew, okay, this is it. It wasn't stopping. It wasn't slowing down. And I got to have, I think, four hours of like burning Palo Santo and cranking up my mantra music and lighting candles and just dancing and swaying my hips and moving and flowing with the surges as they came my way, you know, getting more and more intense. And then four hours in or something like that, midwife comes and immediately does a vaginal exam which right there, like first, first mistake of mine, first like thing that like, fuck, I would never allow again. Why am I interrupting my beautiful flow of labor, of being present in my own body, of getting to know the contractions and the surges that are coming my way, figuring out my breath, like I'm in the journey of that boom, let's stop, take a person in here. And this is also the same person who's told me I should go to the hospital and I'm, I'm overdue and I have to hurry and there's a lot of pressure. She's a very kind person. I'm sure as a human being, she's wonderful. But the energy of her was, was not conducive, right, for my natural label, labor to progress. And then we were in the guest bedroom. Okay, go lie down. Lying flat on my back on a bed was the worst thing I could have possibly done. The least comfortable place I could be for a contraction. And uh, she, you know, inserts her hands up my vagina and does a check. Just, you know, having your cervix examined mid-labor is uh, pretty shitty, <laughs> I don't know if we think about that enough because we think it has to be like that way. That's the safe thing. That's the good thing. That's how they check things are going well. Dude, things are already going well. <laughs> they just want to know at what point to intervene, at what point to give you a drug, at what point to take you to the hospital. <laughs> and uh, after that, I remember just pain got a lot worse. It was just a very uncomfortable place to be. And I had a really hard time finding my breath again. And I was like exposed to people and talking and yeah, I just, I kind of went outside of myself, right? For this intervention, like a cervical exam is an intervention, absolutely is. 
And then I remember her telling me like, oh my God, already four centimeters. That's so great. This is going to be a super quick birth. And already there, like she's boom, she's putting a, after hearing for weeks and weeks and weeks that this is hard, it's, it's too slow, it's, oh my God, to this is going to be really quick. So in my brain, I have this expectation of, oh, okay, here is what it's going to be now because she told me that. And then I try to find this flow again. Contractions are getting harder and harder. She comes back like two hours later, does another check and is like, oh, still only four. Mm. And it really was that, like, oh, only four. So the work I had done in my body the, the past two hours, it didn't really count, right? It didn't really work. That that was the implication, like, okay, keep working, you know, hopefully you'll progress. And, and it's like, it hadn't even been a long, a long time at all. This is my first time birthing a baby. Like the idea that I should have this baby out in a certain amount of hours, it's like six hours in, you should be done. Like, no, that does not exist. That's a really harmful thing to put in a laboring woman's head. So she left again. And then comes back a couple hours later, does another excruciating exam. And of course, like now I know I could have said no, right? I could have said, hey, I, are these exams necessary? Like they hurt? You're forcing me to go into a position that doesn't feel uh, right, that doesn't feel good for what has to happen here, like, why? Why every couple hours? How far? How far? How far? Because of her fear, right? Because of working a whole life in a system telling you that this has to happen quicker. And eventually, I'm sure she had it in the back of her head already at X amount, at X whatever point, like, I will recommend we go to the hospital knowing the hospital is 10 minutes away. And yeah, that's where she probably would have preferred to be, Right. And um, yeah, she does another exam. And then this time it's like, oh, still only four. Nothing is happening. Nothing has happened. And have, being like 10 hours into labor, hearing that nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Like nothing is happening. So he, I mean, from her putting her fingers up my cervix, like that's her that's the conclusion. Nothing's happening. It's not opening. You're not opening. I mean, it might hit, maybe you hear it in my voice as I say this, like it, it pisses me off now. It used to make me really sad, like that she told me that, that I had to hear that at that like really vulnerable, sensitive stage. But it's also a lie. Like it's also a fucking lie. I was told for 18 hours that because her measurement of my cervix didn't exceed four centimeters, that nothing was happening. Whereas I was doing the fucking God-given work of moving my baby down the birth canal, and which I did. Eventually, this baby was born saying nothing's happening, you're not opening, is not only like harmful and super inhibiting to the process of labor, a, a total mindfuck. Like it really fucked me. Like it really 
like messed up my whole head, but it's also a lie. And you cannot just from the centimeters measured or the softness or the firmness of a cervix tell how imminent a birth is or tell how well a birth is going or tell whether or not things are working. Like that is, it is just untrue. It is factually incorrect. It is. And I kind of, I know a lot of midwives are moving away from this idea that X centimeters means this and X means that. And even the idea of having to do any exams during labor at all. And there are so many other ways <laughs> to tell and to notice the progression of labor without, um, without fingering someone. I'm sorry, just to be crude about it. So this kept happening. And at some point, I think it was that, like after the third exam, maybe second exam, it was early, early on. So I think, yeah, maybe it was the second exam. Uh, she was like, since you're not progressing, since it's not working, like since you're not opening, it's very taking a long time. Um, I really recommend we break the waters. And I hadn't heard a lot about that. It wasn't something that I was uh, that I had contemplated. It wasn't something that had been kind of brought to me beforehand that at a certain time, like at hour eight, if the baby isn't here, we're going to break your membranes and break the waters. What does that mean, first of all? Um, what's the consequence of that? No conversation, no question. Just, Just the question was like, would I like that? She didn't do it without my consent. Like I gave my consent, but I... It wasn't informed consent because I was never told what it actually meant. And I said, so what, what does that do? She says, oh, so it, it, it will make things happen quicker. It will help things progress. Baby will come quicker. You will open faster. And at that point, I was just so hammered over the head with, I'm not progressing. It's taking too long. It's not working. And also the overhanging threat of hospital, right? So I was like, anything that will make this go quicker, absolutely do it. Go, go, go. Right? And she's like, great. And then puts these pads on the bed. I lay down again, like mid contraction. It was like, I remember I couldn't, uh, she was, she kind of had to hold my legs down because I was just like, I wanted to turn to my side because contractions were coming like intensely. And it was just such a horrible position to be flat on my back, you know, and she had to be really quick about it. And then I remember hearing, like I heard the pop, I felt the pop of the, of the membranes being severed and just waters flooding out of me, right? And then after that, she's like, yeah, so you can't get in the birth pool anymore. And I was like, what? Yeah, you can't go in the birth pool anymore. You can't birth in water. Like now that the membranes have released, it's no longer safe for you to be in, in water. There's a big risk for infection now. <laughs> Which like, okay. And I think for me, like I had a birth pool set up and filled and, you know, I really wanted to birth my baby in water. I think warm water would have been really helpful for me. And I wasn't allowed to do that anymore. Okay, risk of infection increases by a lot. Like that's that's not great. <laughs> like that's a it's a pretty big consequence of that. And which for me was really worse of all, the the 
the big step in how my contractions increased in strength, in pace and tempo, um, it was such a leap. Whereas before, up until that point, I was still in control. Like I was still managing. I still felt like I had my breath. I had Dennis there. Like I had, I still felt like I, I got it, right? And then the moment she broke my waters, I went from like, I think throughout labor, it's kind of like we we progress. Like pain goes from a one to a two to a three to a four. And eventually pain might get to like, they might get to a 10 or a 12 or like something really, really, really intense. But because we're following the flow of that, we're, we're, it's like an incremental increase. It's somehow manageable. Like the body, the mind, the heart, we we learn how to manage as we as we progress in in labor but breaking the membranes breaking the waters all of a sudden i went from like my pain level was like a 5 maybe to a 10 and i and i missed step 6 7 8 9 and it took my breath away like it took my presence away it took my it shocked me i was not prepared for that at all. And I had such a hard time coping. Like I really, really did. From the moment she broke the waters, it's like the moment I can see things going south. Like like for me, where I felt like I couldn't stay with myself anymore. From being present with the surges as, as they came, I had to escape. I had to get out. I didn't want to be in my body. I, you know, and, and that paired with this knowing that all of this work I'm doing, and it's for nothing. It's not working. Like something's wrong with my body. It's not where I'm not opening. I'm not opening. Fuck. Like I look at this now, this whole combination of shit, which is like literally the least supportive things you can bring a person, like a, like a laboring woman, like all of this, just like the least supportive ever. And I can so see how, yeah, hell yeah, I got to a point like really quickly where I, I became convinced she was stuck because she suggested maybe the baby's stuck. Maybe that's why you're not progressing. But it came from this deep rooted idea that I suddenly had that I, my, my, I, I couldn't do it. My body wasn't working. It wasn't opening fast enough. She must be stuck. And I couldn't handle the pain. It's like the combination of all of that where all of a sudden, yeah, she did a final check. This was like hour 18 and I held on, right? Like I fought. I was a warrior. Like I just, I'm proud of every, every second of every moment of this labor. And it was like hour 18. Okay, let's do another check. Let's do another check. Let's do another check. And remember this time she had to check me on all fours because it was the only position I could manage. And she was really unhappy about that. Like she wanted me to lie down and I couldn't lie down. But she still had to check, right? She had to make sure everything was was stuck, right? And then she goes, yeah, still four, still four. So 18 hours in, still four. And when she said that, and I, I, I something inside of me just like snapped. Like Dennis said afterwards, like he could see in my eyes, like the light, like the fire went out. And even the midwife said afterwards, she said, oh yeah, at that last like check we did, 
I kind of wish I had lied and said you were at five. I should have said you were at five. And I'm looking at that now. It's like, maybe you shouldn't fucking have said anything, like at all from the beginning. Like maybe I shouldn't have been subjected to all of that. Maybe I shouldn't have heard from the beginning that things were not going well. And I really wonder, like if if I would have been just left to be with me and my husband and ride those waves with my breath in a safe way without being told that my body was broken, essentially, without being forced to go on my back for exam after exam, without having my waters broken unnecessarily, potentially being able to be in that tub, you know, in the warm water, like, like, would it have been the same? Would I have arrived at that place 18 hours in saying this baby's stuck, you have to take me to the hospital, someone has to take the baby out. I like someone has to do it. I can't. I'm 100% convinced it's not me. I can't do it. Whereas somehow strangely, and this is also like so strange for how this is supposed to work. We get to the hospital and the baby's not stuck. I didn't have a C-section. I didn't have someone magically turn her inside of my body. I didn't have some, like nothing, right? Just get there, new environment, labor completely stopped in the car, of course, like going in the car, bumpy roads, like everything just stopped. I think I fell asleep in the car. (laughs) And um, get there, try to dim the lights, like ask permission to light a candle, try to play some music through like a shitty phone speaker um, strapped into an EKG, like for heart rate, nurses coming in and out, strangers I didn't know. And uh, 90 minutes later, like I remember just, I think that like sleep, like the little nap I had, just getting out of my head of all of the bad things I was being told the whole time. And I spent like an hour and a half sitting in the bed the hospital bed with my eyes closed. And then it said like that whole face was just like so different. It was just, yeah. And 90 minutes later, she's like, oh, you can push now. (laughs) I'm like, what? Isn't this this thing where you tell me for 18 hours, I'm stuck, nothing's happened, my body doesn't work. And then an hour later, oh, you can push now, you're ready. Like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Like that whole progression of things just proves every single thing she told me prior to that was just messed up and untrue and unnecessary. And I also think that like I was just sitting there quietly (laughs) moving through the contractions as they came, you know, really, really intensely. And I didn't arrive at a place where I felt um, push contractions because I don't think I was ready for that. I think I was kind of recalibrating and finding myself again after all of that that had happened. And uh, she literally just like burst in the room and goes, okay, I think we should try pushing now. Like you're, I can't remember if you said like you're at nine or you're almost there. So let's push. And I thought, okay, well, that must mean that this it's that is true. This is what's supposed to happen. And baby needs to come out now. And I was waiting for for my body to to give me a push, you know, the way I had read in every single book and heard from every single story and 
every one of my friends who gave birth and, you know, like the, the feeling of a push contraction coming. I never had one. And it's not until fairly recently that I realized I think she was just done, right? It had been a long night. <laughs> I think she was like, well, I'm close enough now. Let's just go. It, the baby's heart rate hadn't dropped. My heart rate hadn't dropped. Nothing had happened. It, it was just like push. Now, now push. And for me, I'm not feeling a single, a single urge to push this baby out. Not a fraction. Okay, let's turn around. Let's try to like, okay. And I'm trying to push. And it's kind of like trying to shit out a football, but you don't have to poop. <laughs> Like imagine, like that was kind of the feeling. Like you don't have to go to the bathroom at all. And it's just like, okay, like let's try to shit out this like football <laughs> right now. Like it was just, it wasn't there. And she's just telling me to push and to push and to push and to push. And and it it took forever. It was forever. It was hours of pushing. And I just thought that that's what it was. And I'm just one of those people who never got to that place. And I'm like looking at it now, like, fuck, all of that, every step of the way was just not natural. It was just not supportive to my body, to my sense of safety, to what I needed to actually birth that baby. But even though I was home, I thought I had chosen to be out of that system, right? I still had all the same fucking interventions that they give you at the hospital. And I ended up at the hospital anyway, right? And then I don't know how many hours of pushing later, she finally came out, you know? And then she came out and she was glowing and perfect and came out with her eyes open and said hi. Like she didn't cry. She just said like, hi. Like it was just this magical God meeting moment of meeting my child for the first time in my life. Like everything else disappeared. Everything else felt purposeful. Everything was like, everything brought me to her. So it didn't really, didn't really matter anymore how that happened. And because meeting her was like the pinnacle, I'm crying now. Me meeting her was the pinnacle of my life. It really was. It was the peak, the apex of my whole life. So every single moment that led me to her was good, right? It was purposeful, necessary, important, vital, like nothing else mattered. So even then, like in that moment, I was like, oh, everything was great. Like this birth was great. Like I, like I, yeah, I had, I, it was still a natural birth, right? And I'm like looking at it now, like, what the, f like, was it? Like that's, that whole process of all of that, like that was natural. And eventually they, like, I can't remember, this is also like such a concerning thing. I cannot remember birthing my placenta at all. I have no recollection of how that happened. Because I think I was so like out of it then, like from like feeling so disconnected from my body then. I can't remember if they gave me something for the placenta to come, which is standard at the hospital. I think they did. They took Leah away to weigh her. 
and to measure her. And I, I remember we had no plan for the hospital because I wasn't supposed to go to the hospital. So I hadn't written things down. I hadn't had a chance to talk to anybody there else. And the midwife stayed with me, I think for the placenta. And then I told Dennis, I'm like, hey, do you stay with her every second. You know, stay with her. Make sure they don't do anything to her. And then afterwards, he was like, I think they gave her something. I'm like, what? What? What do you mean? And then they they come in and they let me know that they have like, they had to poke her in the sole of her foot, make her bleed. They had to draw her blood in like 20 places all at the bottom of the sole of her foot because she was so big. So for sure, she has she has a blood sugar issue. Like she might have diabetes. And I'm like, what? Like all of those things, instead of having this peaceful, completely quiet, skin to skin, safe first meeting at home, which I had envisioned for 10 months, like all of that had to happen. And I got her back. I mean, she was, she was, she didn't, she, she was like in the next room with Dennis for a very short time. And that was after she had been on my chest for a long time, but they cut that cord so quick. And that was like their idea of delayed cord clamping, which was something that was really important for me. They cut her cord so quick. Like all the things that I had, skin to skin, to stay with her the whole entire time, to not cut the cord, to wait as long as possible to cut the cord, to not give her anything, not interfere with her in any way, definitely not to poke her until she bleeds, um, not for me to get some kind of drug for my for placenta to come, like all those things were like things I didn't want and they just happened. No one asked me, no question, no like, hey, do you consent to this? Do you want this? Like, that's just what they do, right? And being told that, yeah, she's so big, this is not normal. And I'm like, I was this size. I don't think this is so big. Like, look how big we are. No, you're going to have to stay for observation. Your husband has to go home. And I remember there was like a point there where they were sending Dennis home because they don't let fathers stay at the hospital there. I was like, no, like, wait, wait. It was kind of like I came back into my body again. <laughs> I was like, wait, what is, like, you want, you're, you're telling me and my husband, you're going to leave, my, you want my husband to leave me here with you people? Like, no, 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 no. And I like, remember, like, I tried to just get up out of the bed, like, we're going to, we're going to go home now. <laughs> she had been, she was an hour old, I think. Like, we're going to go home. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today. I remember uh, they had they had a pediatrician come in to like give me permission to leave to say that, yeah, she probably wasn't diabetic or didn't have blood sugar issues or whatever the fuck thing they were thinking that was completely unreasonable and not at all like relevant. And he came in and he looked at us. He was like, yeah, no, this baby is not abnormal. Like this baby is fine. <laughs> like look at the size of the parents. Okay, you can go home. And we like <sighs> checked out <laughs> and I remember them telling me, like, you have to make sure that you go to the bathroom, like number one and number two, before you can leave. And I was like, I did that. I did not do that. I just had to get the hell out of there. And we go down, Dennis gets the car. We didn't even have the car seat installed for the baby because we were not going to go anywhere, you know? And I remember, like, putting her in the car seat and it was, like, it wasn't, it wasn't attached well. <laughs> like, I know that now. And then we get home and I mean, I think it was less than two hours of her being born. We were home again. So it really was like a, an intermission at the hospital to birth her and then come back home. And then I got to sit around the kitchen table and eat fruit with her at my chest. And it was like, that was my goal image. And I was so happy that it happened. And I was so happy to have her and I was so elated and I had so much, you know, oxytocin flowing through my body and anyone who asked me anything about this birth it's like it was amazing so good yeah I wanted to be home but you know she was stuck yeah they told me she was stuck and that became the story and I wasn't lying I wasn't making it up all the facts of everything I shared like that's what happened but it was one version of what happened right from like a rosy colored lens of well it brought me to her and now it's been six years and I look back at that and I'm like, that whole thing was fucked up. That was not an amazing birth. Like that was traumatizing. Like there's a lot of moments and points in there that were really scary, really harmful, really gaslighting, really dangerous, really messed up. And they should not have happened that way. And saying that and grieving that and processing that doesn't take away from the beautiful moments that led me to her. And I've also had this feeling like so many people have truly traumatic birth experiences where things go severely wrong and there's like a risk of loss of life and it's like crazy, crazy, crazy. And then looking at mine, mine was still you know, I still had like peaceful music in there and I didn't have like a crazy thing come my way. So I was minimizing all those things that happened because I was fine and Leah was fine. But all those things, they weren't little. And I'm thinking now how much of this played a part in me not actually wanting to have a second one for this long. Right? I waited six years to have another baby and I have my whole life wanted like five kids. Like since I met Dennis, it's like, we're going to have like half a soccer team. Like I want so many babies, <laughs> definitely didn't want more than two years between the first one and the second one. And I'm thinking about this now. It's like, I, there was a part of me that so could not go through that again. Um, and that it's like looking at a birth story that's majority positive. 
Um, I didn't tear. I didn't need stitches. I didn't need, like, you know, I didn't have like months afterwards suffering. I didn't have postpartum depression. She could latch and nurse. Like, so many things worked so beautifully and were wonderful. But so many things were really messed up. And I have a right to be pissed about that. And I have a right to process that and talk about that and do what I need to do to make sure that they don't happen again. And some of those things that happened are just everyday stuff that happens to every single woman. And majority don't even think that anything's wrong with that at all. Like that's just what it is. It's what it has to be. It's the safest. It's the best, right? And some of those things are rare. Some of those things maybe don't happen everywhere. And every country, every hospital, every person you end up encountering is different. And that's for me what now feels like such a risk to step into that system without needing it, right? If I had an illness, if I had, if I was high risk, genuinely high risk for some reason, if I needed help from the medical system, like I would ask for that. I would go there. I would do those things. Same way, like throughout this pregnancy, I've had a moment or two where I've like had a question or wanted to know something or And I have chosen to step in and then step away and then immediately regretted stepping in, (laughs) which I think I'll talk about it in another podcast, just my experience with those few, few moments that I've had this, this pregnancy. But I feel sitting here now, eight months pregnant, like so safe (laughs) managing my own prenatal care so safe getting closer to the end of pregnancy considering I might go to 43 weeks who knows feels so good doing that feels so safe not having put myself in a position where I risk being told something's wrong with my body when I know it's not there isn't And I feel like I have eliminated so much of the risk of those little interventions that lead to big ones by taking care of myself this time around. And I know people objectively, you know, maybe without knowing me, they think that that's so crazy. I had a really good friend just yesterday. I was like, oh my God, you're so brave not doing any prenatal care, like not going to checkups, not doing any controls. And I'm like, tell me exactly what's brave about that. Like, how is it brave? <laughs> what do you think is just going to, it's going to just ha- it's happen to me, like month so-and-so of pregnancy, if I don't like have an ultrasound every four weeks? Like, what, do, what, do you, what, what is it that you think, really? And should we talk about like the actual statistics and the actual risks of those things that you think happen to every woman and how insane it is and how we can kind of compare that with any one of us at any moment, like you listening to this, me sitting here talking to you, I could like absolutely technically go into cardiac arrest. My heart could stop beating. I could have a heart attack. I could have a stroke. Like absolutely that there is a chance, there's a risk that that could happen. Is the risk of that like very big? Should I walk around with one of those little defibrillators? The, the fibrillators, what do you call them? The fibrillators, the thing that shocks your heart to start up again. Should I walk around with one of those bags everywhere? Should I keep one in my car? Should I invest in one and have one in my house just in case? Right? And what if I like think about that? Like, oh my God, what if my heart would stop? 
even though I have no prior conditions or heart issues or anything. And if I think about that enough or talk about that enough, like, hey, there's a risk my heart might stop. If I carry around that machine that can start my heart back up, like, am I, am I putting myself in a place of higher risk from the stress of obsessing and worrying and freaking out about that? What if everybody started telling me that, hey, like you have a huge risk of just your heart stopping. You should really take care of that. You should really see some specialists. You should really like go to, go to more checkups and health controls. Just like check your heart every month, you know, make sure you're good. Am I putting myself on a path where actually the likelihood of something happening to my heart becomes a little bit higher from the stress and the pressure and the expectation of that? Maybe. But a lot of those things that we think are, or that we get told are like, this is going to happen if you don't do X, Y, Z. They are literally that unlikely. And we have a way higher likelihood and chance of something terrible happening to us as we get in the car today to drive to school, to pick up our kids, to go to the grocery store, to go get gas. Like the likelihood of having a traffic accident is exponentially crazy amounts higher than the likelihood of your baby, something crazy happening to your baby during labor, the likelihood of your placenta detaching from your uterine wall and you hemorrhaging and needing like urgent medical care, the likelihood of you having placenta previa where your placenta covers the opening of your cervix and the baby can't come out like things that they screen for and they check for they are literally those those things but I'm not every time I get in the car to drive to the grocery store preparing for the outcome of maybe I'll have a a car crash and maybe I'll die and then what do I have the stuff I need in the car which hospital do I go to who do I call who will come take care of me no I'm not thinking about my life from that place of risk, even though I do risky things all day long. I get in the car and I drive <laughs> all the time. So looking at a pregnancy, which is an expected state of a human being, a heightened, elevated state, literally the survival of our human race <laughs> depends on pregnancy and labor working. Looking at that from the lens of like you're both potentially going to die. <laughs> and I mean, I say that with like a like a laugh because I, it's it's so absurd. Looking at pregnancy and labor as you're potentially both not going to make it. Nature fucked up. Physiology, biology, nature doesn't actually work. You're most likely not going to be able to do this without a major medical intervention. Looking at women that way is absurd. is is insane. And I think is the core reason why there is so much trauma in labor and birth today. Why we don't walk out of these experiences feeling transformed and empowered and like the goddesses that we are, the miracle we just performed, but why we walk out of them feeling depleted and traumatized and belittled and like this was a horrible thing. Or we just shut down and we don't remember it at all. So that, yeah, next time we do it again, but we don't really talk about what happened first time around because there was a lot that went down that was just very hard for us to digest, right? We just disassociate and close that door and, yeah, go into the next pregnancy in the same system, 
maybe needing another intervention because of what happened the first time around. It's like perpetuating that cycle. And we're just, I, I don't think stepping out of the system, stepping out of the expected, the norm, I don't think that that's a crazy thing to do. I don't think that that's an unsafe thing to do. And that's where I am. 35 weeks pregnant without checkups, without controls, without medicalized prenatal care, without a midwife about to birth this baby on my own. <laughs> like, it feels so sane to me. <laughs> and um, thank you for listening to me sharing this story. I realize I've talked a lot about birth, a lot about pregnancy on this podcast, a lot about motherhood, and I don't think I ever told that full story of labor, of, of birthing Leia in its complete, true, unfiltered state. And part of the reason I haven't done that is because I haven't been able. And I think I started telling this part of the story by sharing that I'd been to therapy and for the past month and a half I've been going to somatic therapy where I get to involve really my body and my nervous system in um, returning to hard moments that have been hard to cope with as I talk about that labor just to process that labor just to process those things that happen and I have gone from not being able to talk about it, not even having words for it, to just crying when I talk about it, to being able to tell you this whole story now, feeling like, yeah, that's what it was. And I can be angry and sad about it, but I am processing it and it's almost out of my system now. And yes, I have no idea what this next birth is going to bring, what labor is going to be. I can't possibly know. And that's part of it too, is surrendering to the huge unknown that is that moment and that journey of our lives. I don't know if I'm going to go into spontaneous labor while I'm <laughs> like literally in the city and then 20 minutes later she's there, or if I'm going to have four days of heavy, hard, excruciating labor. I don't know. Is something wild and unexpected going to happen? Is it going to be peaceful and joyful? Is it going to be everything? I'm not expecting it to be easy. I'm not expecting it to be in a moment of enlightenment. Like I know I've done this once before. I know what labor is. I know how hard this is. But I'm also sitting here now feeling so grounded about where I am and safe in my own body that actually I feel really excited. I do really, 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 really excited. And I can't wait to meet him. So thank you for being here for that whole story. And I guess I could just end on this note that if any of the things that I've shared today on this podcast were triggering in any way, if it brought up memories or feelings or resentments or regret or a feeling of powerlessness or trauma, or if you get pissed at me listening to these words because you didn't have that same experience or you had a terrible experience and you feel like everything I'm saying is 
minimizing your, you know, if anything comes up, which I think talking about labor and pregnancy, like it, it does. If we have unresolved stuff, like it's going to come up the way all this stuff has come up for me now. If something comes up for you, maybe consider that like a little invitation to go down the path of healing that labor, that pregnancy, those births, that there is a way to process the things that were really scary, the things that were hard, the things that felt out of control, that there's a lot of support out there. There's people who literally do this for a living, who literally just work with birth and labor trauma. There's therapists and psychologists and healers and grandmothers and wise people out there to talk to. There's circles of women to sit in, to be held and to be seen and to be listened to and to just, there are tears to cry, right? And there is support out there but we have to seek it right we have to we have to look for it and if anything that i shared throughout this podcast brought something up for you anything if it's anger grief sadness frustration you know take that as a sign to oh like maybe there is something here that is longing to be healed yeah i love you if you have birthed the baby, however that happened, like literally however that happened, you are a goddess, a warrior. Holy shit. Like the reverence you need to look at yourself with from having walked through that fire, however it went down. I hope you feel that and can hold that and trust that. Thank you. I'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure you listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes of From the Heart with Rachel Brayton. This was a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio, and I'll see you next week.